Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone, Dr. McCole helping you take control of your health again. And I'm delighted to have uh, Morley Robbins with us who uh, has had had the reputation in the past for many people I know as being known as the magnesium person. But, and he certainly is, He's, he hasn't stopped embracing embracing magnesium as I haven't either, uh, but he's really gone deep on it. And he's has a, some integrated, some new passions that really resolve, revolve around copper, but actually integrate some of our really other important uh, nutrients like copper. Uh, oh wait, I just said that, copper, that iron and vitamin D and vitamin A in the form of retinol. So it's really, uh, I'm delighted because he, his, let me give you a little bit of background on his history. And correct me if I'm wrong, Morley, but it, at least from reading your book, it, it, it appears that you were a hospital executive uh, preceded by the, by the fact that you had started medical school or were a med, were a med student. Pre-med. 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 Okay, sorry, pre-med, but didn't start med school. So but so you've been passionate about health for a long, long time, probably as long as I have, but never really formally trained in it, but, and actually had really pretty much adopted a conventional medical model until about 10 or maybe 10, somewhere between 10 and 15 years ago. I don't recall specifically. And then you got a shoulder injury, I believe. And, and then started, that started you down the path. <laughs> when I think of, when I think of all the things you've got in your mind that you remember all that, it's amazing. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I just read your book, so I've been, okay. I have an unfair advantage. Yeah. So, um, and I and I and I really uh, enthralled with the work that you're doing. So I've listened to a lot of your podcast, and I, I, it's uh, there's some interviews which are a piece of cake because I just for whatever reason there's no preparation time. But for your, I, I felt a strong need to really get prepared and understand what your work is because I think it's significant, and I'm impressed with the fact that you know, you're pretty much a typical guy, like 10, 15 years ago, didn't really understand much about natural health. And then you just dove deep and like you spent hours every day studying the literature, which is probably one of the best ways to learn. I mean, it's not the best, but it's certainly a powerful way. And, And if that wasn't enough, you combine that with essentially a photographic memory that you have, and you start to put together some really interesting compilations. So uh, it's all about a journey. My journey has been a little bit longer than yours in natural medicine. And we see even people more recent, like Peter McCullough and Robert Malone, Steve Kirsch, all who have essentially been conventional medical models for up until a year or two years ago, Steve Kirsch, less than a year. Right. So, but they, when they, they got it and they went deep and, and now they're putting out information that is just very powerful and compelling. And, you know, they understand the truth. They've been hit by the COVID bat. So you, fortunately, you, you, you started that journey much before they did. But it's all a journey, and we're all learning. Each and every one of us is learning. And so we're going to have a nice, wonderful dialogue about what I believe are some tremendously important topics 
that address the foundational cause, which is the title of your book, The Root Cause. Is it The Root Cause or The Root Cause Protocol? The Root Cause, yeah. Root Cause, yeah, The Root Cause. So The Root Cause Protocol is an implementation of what you found. And, and in my view, you hit pretty much every basic cause. I mean, there isn't one that, I, that is excluded, which is odd because most people write about health and miss a few of them, but you've got all of them. And from my perception, I mean, there's probably some missing ones that both of us don't know about, but, but it, the issue is it's a journey and it's just fun to connect with someone who's, who's as smart and intelligent as you are and put it all together and, and uh, giving us some insight. So what I, I'm hoping that our listeners will get is the really dramatic importance of copper and how it plays into all this and how it's not just something you supplement with, but it's a far more complicated and foundational approach to optimizing copper in your system, because no one has done, has really exposed this area of health and biology as well as you have. So I'm convinced of that. If they have, I have not seen and encountered them. So congratulations for that. And thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. Uh, well, this is sort of, it's a surreal moment. Uh, you may not recall, we, we met on my birthday weekend in 2010 at the- Weston A. Price meeting. Is that how long it's been since I was Weston Price? And then I, I offended Sally and she kicked me off her board <laughs> because I disagreed with the cod liver oil. Or, well, that, that could be a badge of honor, right? <laughs> I'm sorry? That could be a badge of honor. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. It just yeah. depends on your perspective. No, because Weston Price has done a lot of good work. I mean, obviously. Oh, Dr. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Done and I think if Dr. Price had had more time, I think he would have gotten to the minerals. I mean, he nailed he nailed vitamin A and the X factor. He absolutely understood the importance of fat. But I think what, what he missed, and it's no criticism, it's just a matter of time. I don't think he understood the, the role that minerals play to really activate enzyme pathways. And it's just a very fundamental, as, you, as you're noting, it's, it's the very essence of metabolism is are the enzymes working? You know, are they doing their, their intended job? And I'm, I'm laughing about the fact that I, I, I like um, use BMWs. They're just, they're very well engineered. And, oh. and, and yeah, I but they say, break down all the time. They're worse than yeah, Okay, you're going to get a kick out of this. So I went to, I was going to go run an errand <laughs> and I put my key in the ignition. It's like, click, <laughs> the, the battery was dead. And I said, oh, well, this is just to get me ready for the conversation with Dr. McCola, because that's, <laughs> that's what the whole problem is with, them, with the world now is people don't have the, the, the batteries aren't, aren't working right. Yeah, so, yeah. And, and I think, and I think that, we should expand that because by battery, I'm, I'm assuming you're referring to the mitochondria. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, and if they don't have the, the minerals that they need to, to do their work, they're, they're not going to function. And I think the, probably a good starting point is to clarify what, what the mitochondria is really about. Yeah, we, yeah definitely, because that's the crux of the issue. Is, right. I mean, the, the, everything we're talking about is really pointing to improving the quality and the functioning of the mitochondria. Right. And, and the whole essence of, of the root cause protocol is, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more as we go forward, but ignore the enemies, let's ignite the energy. Let's really focus on how do we how do we create energy, and the mitochondria are usually referred to as power power plants. It's it's not a power plant. One author, uh, just an amazing reference, talks about it as being a biological microchip. 
which is a completely different idea. And then you're suddenly left with this idea of, wait, it's not a power plant, it's a factory. And what goes on in a factory? A lot of activity that depends on energy, but there's a lot of movement of raw materials and end products. And people don't think about that. And the fact that the mitochondria are connected to both the endoplasmic reticulum and the lysosomes, well, suddenly you've got lysosomes being the recycling center and the, the endoplasmic reticulum being where the proteins are going to get made. It's like a completely different idea. And then we get to the idea of, we all have this image from our high school biology class, what the picture of a cell looks like. Mm -hmm. and, and it has one or two mitochondria. Well, I've, I've come to realize that that picture was drawn by Walt Disney. Because ah. <laughs> it's, it's a complete distortion of reality. The average cell has 500 mitochondria. The average, the average liver cell, 2,000 mitochondria. Kidney cell, 4,000 mitochondria. Heart cell, 10,000 mitochondria. Then let's get to the mature eggs in a woman's body. Anywhere from 100 to 600,000 mitochondria. And then the, the, the brain region that I think is the most fascinating is the substantia nigra. Mm. It has 2 million mitochondria per neuron. Well, that, see, that's a game changer when you begin to understand the concentration of activity. Is, and, that, where, is that what goes defective in Parkinson's? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. So making dopamine. Making dopamine, but it's, it's also just the, the whole energy process. And the, the key is that in order to get the diagnosis of Parkinson's, 66% of those neurons need to be dead. So that 66% times 2 million mitochondria per neuron, we're talking about a massive loss of energy. And that begins to put everything in a different frame of reference when you're talking about the, when you think about it in an energy paradigm, the whole concept of, of health and disease is completely different at that point. Yeah, and when you think about a drug paradigm, like treating that, they would, conventional physicians would prescribe L-DOPA, which actually makes it much worse in the long run. And then no way, shape or form addresses these dying neurons with all these mitochondria. Well, and, and the other part that, and again, I don't know how I happened into this process. It, it, this is a divine assignment, I think. And I've been guided over the years and I've been blessed to, to meet some amazing research scientists and have conversations like this. So this is just a, like a peak experience. But this whole concept of energy production is, is so essential and it's overlooked. Well, what is, what's another way of describing lack of energy? It's called inflammation. Inflammation is, is poor energy production. Why? Because the, the mitochondria, it's a two-stroke engine. And there's, there's two copper centers, as you probably know, copper A and copper B. Well, copper A is the easy stroke. It gets us to hydrogen peroxide. But then we've got to turn hydrogen peroxide, H2O2, into two molecules of water, 2H2O. Mm -hmm. That's very different than H2O2, right? Mm -hmm. And so if, if the body keeps defaulting into H2O2, it's a clear sign of lack of copper, both from the standpoint of the active side, the cytochrome C oxidase enzyme is not doing its job. Okay, we, we, you, you and I know this really well, and I, I just sorry to interrupt, but I just want right. to, to break it down so that people without molecular biology background or even science by high school biology understand this. So when you introduce a term like cytochrome C oxidase, I think probably 
uh, it's best to identify what that is. And, okay. and maybe even while you're doing that, just mention how the fact that this peroxide is a source of oxidative stress. And when you're That's producing right. too much of that, you're going to cause lots of free radicals and secondary damage. So, so we, we, just want, I, we want to keep it simple for people. It's fine. No, that's great. So we live on a planet that has two very, very active elements, mm -hmm. oxygen and iron. And, and we know they don't mix well because they create rust. And yet mitochondria are filled with the, the terminal destination for both iron and oxygen are the mitochondria. That's an important thing to understand. And so inside these organelles, these um, factories, if we can call them that, are a series of proteins that are loading electrons onto oxygen and loading hydrogen. And the term that's used in the literature is we're activating oxygen and we're activating hydrogen to create water. Turns out that, that the mitochondria are water wheels. They're the source of water in our metabolism. And when, when minerals are in optimal levels, we can make water. And once we make water, which implies a pH of seven, because that's when water exists, mm -hmm. Once we make water, that releases the precursor to energy called ADP, and it goes over to another complex to become ATP. Very, very important. And as many people might know, those, those proteins, ADP and ATP, actually have magnesium in them to, keep, to give them structural integrity. Very, very important uh, aspect of, of energy uh, dynamics. And so when we're in, what I was referring to just a minute ago about, I was talking about complex four. So there actually are five complexes. In the mitochondria, in the electron transport chain in the mitochondria. Right. And, and the complex one, complex two, and complex four, excuse me, complex one, three, and four work together. They're, they're a very important unit. Complex two is kind of off to the side and may get involved, but for the most part, one, three, and four and complex four has multiple ele elements of copper in it. In fact, it turns out they will often say there's, a, uh, there's three atoms of copper. Well, it turns out complex four is a dimer. So there's six atoms of copper. That's, a, that's an important jump in our understanding. It's like, oh, wow, complex four has got more copper than I realized. And what's its job? Its job is to turn oxygen into water. And here's where I think it gets really fascinating. We've all been in kitchens. We've all been to fancy restaurants and seen kitchens. And every kitchen that we've ever been in has a stove, right? And, and, they're, and they're usually made of what? Iron, you know, steel. And, and they're, they're cooking something. But does the, does the stove run itself? Does the stove know what food to put into the pot? What temperature? How long to keep up? Of course not. It needs a chef. I, I call them cuisine artists, so we can see them. Symbol for copper, C-U hyphen I. <laughs> and so, again, in, this is where I think it's just, it's so fascinating. Inside the complex four, there is a stove, and it's called heme A, heme A3, and it holds oxygen. And then copper B comes along and slices and dices. It lets the electrons and hydrogen flow through. And voila, 
we have water. I think that's amazing. But then you think about how frequently it's happening. And then that releases ADP to go over to complex five, which is called the ATP synthase. And it's a rotor. It's, it's, it's a little motor inside the mitochondria. And these are actually, Dr. McCoy, they're stacked like pancakes. We don't really know how many complex fives are in one mitochondria. It could be hundreds, it might be thousands, but they're each spinning at 150 revolutions per second. And, and every time it goes around- It's 9,000 RPMs per minute. Yep. And every time it goes around, it's releasing three magnesium ATP. And just, just think of the, 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 the vortex of thousands of these little rotors inside one mitochondria, much less thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions. And, and then, we, then we get to just the sheer elegance of the design of human physiology. It's absolutely amazing. And, and in complex, is complex four cytochrome C? Cytochrome C oxidase, absolutely. Oh, it's the oxidase, because there's a, I thought that was the enzyme. But the, the enzyme is the oxidase. The cytochrome C is the electron shuttle. Yeah. Okay. But what's real important about that shuttle is it needs retinol. Hmm. There's a, there's a four-part component. It's called the respirosome. Very few people. Uh, Hootman, H-U-T-T-E-M-A-N-N. Uh, 2015, 2019, wrote some amazing articles about it. And the, the complex, it's four parts, but if retinol isn't there in adequate levels, it's gonna set the stage for what's called the Warburg effect. Mm -hmm. that take, that's gonna take us down a whole different bunny trail, but whoever knew about retinol being critical for energy production? That's not, that's not something that's typically discussed in clinical circles. Yeah, so maybe we can take a little tangent here because retinol, you're one of the few people who really dive deep into retinol too. And, and why don't you expand on what retinol is? It's not beta carotene. And as far <laughs> as I know, maybe you can correct me, there are no plant sources of retinol. It only comes from the animal kingdom. Yeah, you know, there's, there are differences of opinion. I think the mainstream agreement is that retinol is from animal sources. There are some uh, plant physiologists who will say that early plants might have produced retinol. I don't, I don't know of any way to prove that one way or the other. But the important point that you're making there is that beta carotene is not retinol. I, I happen to be reading a fascinating master's thesis from a student at uh, Oregon State University from 1987. You know, it's like, yeah, he, he is that kind of a nerd. I was fascinated by it yesterday. And she had some striking uh, insights that the, um, she absolutely confirmed that you cannot make um, retinol from beta carotene unless you have adequate copper in the tissue. Oh, that is interesting. That yeah. is another connection. <laughs> that's, a bit, that's, a, that's a big game changer. And so again, the, the retinol, and, and, and again, I know we'll get into discussions about the, the fat, fat soluble vitamins, but I think a, another important thing for people to understand is that sunlight is real important yeah. for making vitamin D. We absolutely agree on that. But sunlight's also critical for breaking down retinol into its component metabolites. They're called retinoids. 
-hmm. And turns out there's things like nuclear receptors and there are what are called retinoic acids. Well, they're mm -hmm. hormones. These are incredibly important. They, the nuclear receptors are what make the thyroid work, but make vitamin D work. It, it, it can go on and on. But the important thing is for people to realize is that when we go out in the sunlight, we're doing two things. We're activating D and we're breaking down A so that the, the regulatory functions that A is responsible for begin to take effect. And not a lot of people talk about that. I think uh, Mawson from 2013 is probably the only author I've seen explain the distinction of light for both A and D. And that's, I think it's really of paramount importance for people to understand that. And then we find out that well, before we go on, I, let me just yeah. take a little tangent here because there's so much information to cover. And I just I think this is a good point to make another, yeah, another little tangent on vitamin D and sunlight, uh, because this is one where we're absolute and perfect synchrony on. And that, and I've been always, always recommending that people get their vitamin D from sun exposure. And the, the reason I want to stop and emphasize that is because I knew that was the case, but I also knew that there was other reasons why that was important. And you mentioned just now another really vital one that I didn't really appreciate until I, re I started reviewing your work, uh, and that is the, the activation of vitamin A. So uh, you can swallow vitamin D. In some cases, you don't really have another option if you're going to increase your levels, but that is far, far, far inferior to getting sun exposure. And the other thing that you didn't mention, but you do in your book, is that 95% of the melatonin in your body is not produced in your pineal gland. It's produced in your mitochondria when you're exposed to sunshine or infrared radiation right. Right. Uh, on your skin. Good. So three reasons why sun exposure on bare skin is absolutely essential and vital to your life and part of the root cause protocol. But again, we are energy and light beings. But it doesn't get any more basic than that. And what, what's really interesting is uh, one of the most fascinating conversations I had was with a, a noted um, marketing consultant for the natural food industry. His name is Michael Fishman. The guy's brilliant. Sure, I and, know him. Yeah. And he, he told me we, were, we had a day-long uh, conference together. And he said, you know, I'm always asked, hey, Michael, what's new? What's new? He said, well, I've learned to ask the, the other question. What's enduring? And that conversation about what's enduring got me to look back and go back to the very beginning of, of time when oxygen was first appearing and then finding out that retinol was the first hormone on the planet, which is, it's like, wow, that's significant. And, and according to the astrobiologists and how they know this, I don't know, but they claim that 700 million years later, vitamin D shows up. Well, what, what is retinol? What is vitamin A? It's a light sensor. Oh, we've got light. Let's work with it. Come on, we can take those photons and do something. And what is what is vitamin D? It's a light filter. It's sunglasses. Let's let's dampen a little bit of that light because we don't need so much. And it's a fascinating concept to think of those as uh, in parallel yin yang functions. And I think that's the most important thing for people to realize is that we shouldn't be focusing on one at the exclusion of the other. They are they are fricking frack. They're yin and yang. And they need to be considered together. Yeah, and they, and a lot of people struggle with optimizing their vitamin D. And it's it's a point that I haven't mentioned frequently enough is that it really is vital that you get vitamin A 
And as you mentioned and reinforces that that's mostly animal foods, or you can take a supplement to get it too. Like things like, I think in your, your book, you recommend cod liver oil. And I think uh, is one of the ones you, you advise. Grass-fed beef liver, cod liver oil. Yeah, beef liver too. Yeah, how could I forget? That's probably the densest source of minerals that you could possibly get too. Yeah, exactly. And, and so the, you know, the thing is, our ancestors didn't struggle with this. I mean, they mm -hmm. go back a couple hundred years ago, and, and I think we, we tend to glamorize their lifestyle. I think it was pretty rugged, but they didn't have the food processing issues that we have. They didn't have the agricultural issues that we have. And so I think the environment's very different today than it was back in the day. Back when, when Dr. Price was doing his research, it was a different world, completely mm -hmm. different world. And, and so I think we need to put it in that context that um, there is value in having that ancestral understanding. And I really think that's at the, at the base of it, we need to be eating an ancestral diet. Whatever, whatever our ancestral origin might be, we need to understand um, that that becomes code for our body and how it, how it performs. And lifestyle too. It's not yeah. just the diet. I mean, diet is obviously a big portion of it, but your sleeping patterns, your EMF exposures, Absolutely. sunlight exposure, all of that. Exercise too. Huge, huge. Absolutely. Yeah. You realize that we spend a relatively small amount of our time gathering food, at least in the Western world. Right. But historical times, I mean, almost 75% of their energy was invested in finding food and getting it. <laughs> Well, and, and by by whatever the, the process has been, uh, Dr. Liz, my wife, who who allowed me to get my my arm back, um, she and I have been doing work with the Amish in Pennsylvania, and it's and actually now we're we're doing work with folks in Indiana and Ohio and Michigan. It's it's absolutely fascinating, but it's given us a chance to see what earlier life was like. Mm -hmm what the agrarian society was was really based upon just to your point that it's that these are these are hardworking people i mean they and they have a very different lifestyle but the beauty is they understand these concepts uh, from the get-go because they know how important minerals are to farming mm -hmm. and it's, it's like it's just magical to get their their perspective on it and that's that's what's lost in uh the world of convention is again I don't think doctors understand. There are really four things that I, I think they're missing. I don't think they have a strong enough background in mineral metabolism. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> they don't understand oxygen metabolism. They don't understand um, the whole process of what parasites represent. And I don't think they really understand energy metabolism. Mm -hmm. And so those are four really, like they're the four quadrants of, of um Lack of awareness. They just, they don't even think about those concepts, but they're actually integrated. And what's playing in the background of all that is iron. They're, mm -hmm. they're not, they're not aware of the, um, the fact that we uh, add iron. Iron accumulation is a daily event on this planet that, that um, we as older adults have more iron in our body than we did when we were in our twenties or when we were first born. And and all the iron biologists know this. I mean, it's, 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 it's the cornerstone of their understanding. And what I think is probably the biggest uh, gap is realizing that, <clears throat> I think it's the, uh, the Chinese that first came upon this idea, is that copper is the general and iron is the foot soldier. And so 
generals have a lot of sway over the foot soldiers. Well, it turns out that's exactly how our body works. Iron serves at the pleasure of copper enzymes. And I think it was LVM and Sherman in 1932 were the first to prove that if you don't have copper in the diet, you can't make hemoglobin. Well, that, that's a long time. What is that, 80 years ago, 90 years ago? It's like, that's, I don't know if that's taught in doctor school now, that, that copper is central to it. And so I think one of the great um, points of disinformation is the idea that we're anemic and we're copper toxic. That this idea that well we, we, we are anemic, but we're not iron deficient necessarily. Iron deficient, exactly. It's it's not iron deficiency. It's iron dysfunction. It's mm -hmm. iron dysregulation, and that is a very important nuance. I think it's it's treated pretty fairly in the book, but it's not it's not central to clinical education. Yeah, I, I let's, let's take a sidestep for a moment too to emphasize the importance of iron toxicity, and this isn't an, an area I've been familiar with for over three decades. Uh, I actually diagnosed my father with hemochromatosis because he has a genetic, had, he passed away re, not too long ago, a genetic anemia called, uh, hemolytic anemia called thalassemia, okay. which predisposes to that. But uh, thanks to Bill Sardi, who just recently okay. passed away himself, I think last week or He's two weeks genius. ago. Yeah. yeah. So, but he's the person who first helped me understand that iron toxicity issue. And it, it, once your eyes are open, they never get closed on this. <laughs> and it's, it's so dangerous. And, and, and reading your work reminded me of how critically important it is. And, and I've essentially neglected reminding people what I already knew for 30 years. And you reminded me of is that this is a big, big deal. And I've now I've elevated it back up in my talks to to mention it every time because it's it's massive and, and maybe one of, and it does and I want you to explain in detail why it's so dangerous. Um, my my guess is because it it absolutely increases excessive oxidative stress. Absolutely, and, and, and free radicals and damages your body, but it, it's massive. So why, why why don't you walk us through this because this is a this is a big one, folks. It's it's probably one of the top three things for health. Yeah, iron dysregulation is the elephant in the room. It's in the it's it is front and center why we have the, the level of dysfunction, metabolic dysfunction. So when we go back into the mitochondria, again, they're not just making energy. They are in very critical recycling centers. And again, if if iron has a terminal destination in the mitochondria, that means it needs to be recycled. And what's it supposed to be recycled into? It's either going to become a heme group or it's gonna become iron sulfur clusters. Those are the two principal sources of, of using iron in the body beyond the dominance that, that hemoglobin plays in, in our body. And so it turns out that to make heme and to make, to make iron sulfur clusters, well, gosh, we, we've gotta have copper. Four of the eight enzymes to make heme are copper dependent. And, and the rate limiting variable in making iron sulfur clusters requires copper. So if in fact there is a deficiency in copper, which I would argue exists because the, the world of farming and the world of food processing has lowered copper's presence in the soil, in the food and in our body. And, and by virtue of that, the concentration of copper in the mitochondria has changed. It is lower today than it was 90 years ago. 
And it's, it's been the number one nutrient deficiency on the farm for 80 years. Copper has been the number one nutrient deficiency. But at the same time, what the World Health Organization will tell you is that, well, iron deficiency is the number one nutrient. <laughs> it's like, what, wait, what? those are two connected and they don't know that. Got a quick question, but I wanted to ask you for a while is what's the best way to supplement copper back into the soil so it gets into the root? Is it copper sulfate? Yeah, one of my one of my students is a, an award-winning farmer in North Northern California up in Reading. And he grows um, barley and, and radishes. He's just an amazing guy. And uh, I asked him, I said, what, what's the best way? He said, well, Marley, it's actually really easy. He said, before I plant, he said, I just spray the, the soil with copper sulfate, 10 to 15 pounds per acre. He said, and that what that does, Dr. McCullough, is it, it enhances the bricks content. Of the mm. Wow. And the connection between copper and sugars it's just, it's absolutely amazing. And so that is the, the magic sauce that mm -hmm. is not well understood in farming circles. As you, a lot, of, a lot of farmers don't want to take the additional expense and time to do that. It's like, well, gee, if you're, if you're trying to produce a good <laughs> crop and good animals, that would be a good thing to, to, to focus on. So yeah, the, it's, the, it's not just organic. I mean, it's great not to have no. pesticides, but you want the minerals in your food. That's why you're getting it ostensibly because it's healthier soil and it can provide you with those minerals. But most of the soil is depleted. Yeah, we, we eat food to get nutrients, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so if we don't have the copper in our, in our tissue, and that means we're not going to have copper in our mitochondria, and again, it's, it's probably useful for people to know that, again, we're back to, there's a lot of mitochondria in the bodies. They, they say it's 40 quadrillion. So that's 15 zeros. It's a, it's a number we can't even relate to. But ostensibly inside each mitochondria, according to Paul Cobine at Auburn University, and he's, a real, he's a real sharp guy, in 2004, 2006, he proved that there's 50,000 atoms of copper in each mitochondrial matrix. Well, that's a big deal. And so if the copper's not there, then the, the heme enzymes are not going to work right. And the he, iron sulfur cluster enzymes are not going to work right. And iron is going to start to build in the mitochondria and then ultimately into the tissue. So it's going to go into what's called mitoferrin. That's a storage mm -hmm. locker in the mitochondria. And then it might spill out into the ferritin inside the, in the, inside the cell itself. But when that starts to build, when, when it's, it's called the labile iron pool, LIP, and labile does not mean happy. It does not mean free. It means really reactive. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's important to understand what that word means. And so as that iron is rising, there can be a 40% loss of energy, a 60% loss, 80% loss, up to a 94% loss of energy as iron is rising in the concentration inside the cells. And is this because it's actually damage, damaging the ETC? Exactly, it's damaging the ETC, absolutely, but it's also affecting the ability to work with oxygen. Again, the-, the So the, in a specific complex or generally, or well, I mean, what, one, what way? Just, just complexes one, three, and four. Okay, okay. <laughs> There's just a whole, yeah. wholesale yeah. breakdown, and again, Again, we've got to think of it in simple terms. It's rust. The, the iron is going to, if, if the oxygen is not going to be activated properly at complex four, most important 
enzyme ac activity on the planet, I would argue, complex mm -hmm. four, got to turn mm -hmm. oxygen into water. If that doesn't happen, you're going to create superoxide. That's, that's an oxygen molecule with an extra electron. It's not super, it's actually hyperoxide. You're going to create hydrogen peroxide. You're going to create the hydroxyl radical. Well, these mm -hmm. are very, these are violently reactive and they have varying degrees of half-life. But what it does is it begins to increase the acidity inside the cell. And when the cell begins to become more acidic, it can't make energy. And that's mm -hmm. ultimately what iron is doing is it's, it's causing this increased acidity because of its reactive nature with oxygen and these um, proteins in, in the ETC that you're talking about. Yeah, I think you also have a counterintuitive perspective on nitric oxide, which is generally perceived to be a very helpful nutrient in its respect to modulate that vascular tone and optimize blood pressure. But in the context of molecular damage, if, if you're increasing superoxide, which isn't that potent an oxidative stressor, relatively right. minor, uh, but you have that and you combine that with nitric oxide, you get peroxynitrite. Exactly. which is a free nitrogen species. And that thing is Very not true. as dangerous acutely as a hydroxyl free radical, but it lasts like, um, um, it's either, I think it's a thousand or a million times longer. A, a, a hydroxyl free radical is only Very a, sure. Very a billionth of a second. I mean, it can only travel a distance of one protein. That's it. So it has a very limited radius of where it can cause damage. But peroxynitrite, goes in and can actually go in and out of the cell and still last so long. It's more like the, the steel ball in a ping pong machine. Yeah, yeah. Nitrate. Yeah, I did not know that about the the uh, the, the lifespan of uh, the hydroxyl radical. Billionth of a second, that's not- Billionth of a second. So, so, you know, at the speed of light, you can't travel that far, right? Right. But, but it doesn't I think travel at the speed of light. But what's important is, again, begin to get a frame of reference about, we're not talking about the, the Disney cell the, the, the cells have a lot of mitochondria. And if they start to accumulate a lot of iron, and again, the, the key is there's a big difference between iron deficiency in the blood versus iron dysregulation in the mitochondria and in the cell. And, and that's not adequately understood in clinical circles, that they're not one and the same. And it was Bruce Ames and, um, and his colleague- He's still alive or he passed? I think he's still alive. Yeah. Okay, good. You know, at, at one point, he was the most quoted scientist on the planet. Yeah. You know, it's a big deal. I've, I actually had a chance to meet him. He's a fascinating guy. And the thing is, he's the one, I think it was 2004, figured out that there's 10 times more iron in the cell than shows up in the blood. Well, that, that's a watershed event. It's like that means that the blood tests that we're relying on are not accurate. They're not revealing the whole story of mm -hmm. iron metabolism. And I think that's one of the most important things for people to realize is that, that if, if they're basing judgments on strictly a ferritin test or strictly a hemoglobin test, that's not, that's not adequate. You need to be, be able to understand what's going on with my zinc, my copper, my ceruloplasmin. I've got to have multiple measures of iron activity, transferrin, percent saturation. And I need to know about the fat soluble vitamins, A and D because their ratio is really, really important to this overall dynamic that we're talking about. So where is most of the iron in the body? Is it in hemoglobin? Is it in bone marrow? Is it in storage iron? Where, where does it hang out? And what is the most accurate reflection of that? 
It's it, that's such a great question. I love that question. And and folks, I did not pay him to ask that question. I love. <laughs> so let's talk about it at the body level. So the, the ratio of iron to copper at the body level is on average there's about five thousand milligrams of iron in the body, and about one hundred milligrams of copper. So about fifty to one ratio. That's a big difference. Mm -hmm. And let's go inside the blood. To, to your point, where's the highest concentration? Highest concentrations in hemoglobin. Mm -hmm. That's 70% of the iron is in the hemoglobin. So inside the blood, <clears throat> we have a concentration of iron, 3,500 milligrams of iron, one milligram of copper. Big difference. Now let's keep going down. Let's go inside the bone marrow. Because that's really what, that's where it's at, right? Because mm -hmm. it's the bone marrow that decides, am I going to make bone or am I going to make blood? And how much of the blood is going to be in the immune system? Really important decisions. 24 milligrams of iron. 47 milligrams. Wow. Big difference, right? And so suddenly we have a completely different understanding of how important the bone marrow are and how dependent they are on copper to make blood. And that's why the work of LVM and Sherman back in the 30s is so important because they knew intuitively, they, did, they couldn't prove it you know, from a biochemical standpoint, they didn't have the technology then, but they knew intuitively that when they pulled copper out of the diet, hemoglobin levels collapsed. And when they reintroduced it, they perked right back up. And so this research has been going on and, and actually the most fascinating uh, study that I came across recently which you'll get a kick out of, Kim and Gonzalez, January 2021. What they decided to do was focus on 10 genes. Four of them dealt with iron, four of them dealt with zinc, five of them dealt with copper. Mm. And they withheld copper from the diet of the mice to see which gene changed, if any. They, they weren't sure what was going to happen. And it, it, it's, a, it's absolutely, it's like, it's like, wow, they actually pulled it off. So and they withheld copper and there was only one gene that changed. And it's the ferritin light chain that, that really pretty much rules the liver. And it went off like a rocket. And in 1928, that same team back at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, Hart, Steinbach, Waddell and LVM, 1928, they figured out that when they pulled copper out, Iron loading took place in the liver. And we come forward almost 100 years later, Kim and Gonzalez figured out the very gene that's affected by a loss of copper in the diet. And there's a big difference between ferritin light chain, which is loading, and ferritin heavy chain, which is like an ATM machine. Put it in, take it out, put it in, take it out. Light chain is it's just going there. And eventually the light chain is going to become hemosiderin. And people don't, what's that? Well, hemosiderin is like a bank vault, and you got to have a combination and a key, and the manager's missing. And so the, the hemosiderin is 10 times more iron. And think about the, the amount of reactive activity that iron has. Well, multiply it times 10. And we begin to get, we're back to the very question that you were asking, why is iron so, so dangerous? It's mm -hmm. just this highly reactive uh, element that has been, I think, glossed over. The, again, mm -hmm. this idea that we're anemic, as you say, it's like, 
well, let's, let's pull the curtain back more and understand what does that mean? What does that really mean from a physiological and metabolic standpoint? Where is the iron? Well, the iron's stuck. And if the iron's stuck because it can't properly recycle, which is what iron needs to do. Again, the, the mindset of the modern physician today is iron needs to be stored. No, iron needs to be constantly recycled in the body. And, and all the clinicians knew that from 1860 to 1972, that was the whole basis of measuring hemoglobin. It's, it's being recycled. And then in 72, Jacobs et al., famous hematologist in London, said, well, let's focus on the ferritin protein. It's like, what? what? That doesn't make any sense. It's a storage protein. And, and people don't realize that that protein isn't supposed to be in the blood. But I had a very uh, poignant conversation with Douglas Kell a number of years ago. And I asked him, I said, Dr. Kell, what's the ideal ferritin, serum ferritin for a human? Mm -hmm. He said, zero. <laughs> I said, what? Yeah. I, th I thought he was kidding at first. He's, a, he's about my age, very affable guy. He's like you, he's got this big wall of books behind him. And, and he said, Morley, I wanna make sure you understand this. He said, rising ferritin is not a sign of iron vitality. It's a sign of organ pathophysiology. Do you hmm. understand what I just said? I said, yes, sir, I do. And it's, it's again, the average person doesn't understand that. And certainly the average person's practitioner doesn't understand that. And I think that's where the epicenter okay. of the confusion is. Well, I think that's an important point. I want to come back to it after we in, uh, inspire people and give them some tips that they can actually take home into the bank. I mean, literally this week and, and put on their calendar to do to radically improve their health. And this isn't going to cost you anything for most people. And that is to do something altruistic and donate your blood. Now, in, in my mind, I mean, and you can review this, the statistics, I think you quoted in your book, where uh, people who donate blood a few times a year wind up living a lot longer because, because we know we reduces their iron and all the associated pathology you just mentioned. So uh, in my view, it is the single best way to lower your iron. There's nothing that outcompetes that because as you mentioned, 70% of the iron in, in, in your blood or in your body is in hemoglobin. Which one? In the body. In the body. In the body. Oh, 70%. So that clearly is the best way. Just remove it out of the body. Yes, so, and that should be true for every adult man, unless they have some acute blood loss and most all postmenopausal women. So I want to table the discussion for the menstruating women and children because that's a special group that I think we have to be careful of and not necessarily universally make that recommendation. But let's go for that group. Every adult male, men 18 and older or 16 and older, and all postmenopausal women. So let's talk about the blood donation as the, the single best way that you could inexpensively improve your health. Absolutely, hands down. And all the, all the iron biologists agree on that. See, the thing is that there is no active mechanism there's no enzyme there's no hormone there's no active mechanism to deal with excess iron other than gravity blood loss allows it to leave the body and it's a it's a profoundly basic principle and there was a famous uh, iron biologist at the indiana university ed weinberg and uh, in 2010 he wrote this famous article and he said at the first out onset of not feeling well 
I go to the blood center, donate a pint of blood, and invariably I was yeah. <laughs> so again, it's not to overplay it, but it's an important uh, principle, particularly as we age. Again, you know the the the, the gerontologists. I think they tend to put an elephant skin over a mouse. The, the what is aging? It's iron accumulation. Our eyes, our hearing, our hair, you know, our ticker, our liver, our joints. It, all these conditions of, of old age is just iron accumulation. Why is it accumulating? Because it's not being recycled. And what's falling as we age? There's, there's some really critical minerals. Magnesium's dropping. Copper's dropping. And what I just learned this weekend, retinol. Retinol is not available in our metabolism. Why? Because it gets stuck in our liver because it's not being attached to the retinol binding protein. So it stays as retinol esters in the liver and it has no function then. It's, and I'll it's, bet that retinol binding protein is dependent upon copper. I'm looking. I have not found that. Some authors will tell you it's zinc, uh, but there's clear indications. The, the relationship between copper and retinol is magical. The other connection that people need to know about is a connection between iron and sugar. So there's two axes that run the body, copper and fat, iron and sugar, and never the twain shall meet. And I was reading a, a very interesting article this morning from 1925 by a famous, um, I'm not even sure what especially he was, he was brilliant, uh, went to Hopkins, uh, in 1909, graduated, and then worked at the Rockefeller Institute. I'll let you connect the dots. And, <laughs> and so he's talking about when you get into the cell, he was studying, he was studying the origin of cancer. It's fascinating. They, they knew exactly what caused cancer in the 20s. And it was cellular and chemical irritation. It's fascinating. Mm -hmm. But but the thing is, um, if you if you are dealing with the cell said there are only two elements that it works with, proteins and fat. There wasn't any mention of sugar in that. And this was a very sophisticated article I was reading from the 20s. And it's like, I've read a lot of articles, as you probably know. How many have I found that actually talked about the metabolism of fat in the mitochondria? How many would you guess? Handful? One. One. <laughs> okay. And, so, and, that, and I think the mitochondria actually are are fat organelles. They really, they prefer fat, but we've been, we've been uh, corralled into a diet based on sugar. And it has this really uh, toxic relationship with iron. And, and most people don't know that. It's amazing yeah. what, it, what it does to the uh, chemistry of the cell. Well, let's veer back to the assessment of iron deficiency or iron toxicity, I guess. And yeah. you mentioned some of the things and started to talk about them with Ferritin before I interrupted you. And asked you to, to go over the uh, phlebo phlebotomy. Or, and actually, if you can't donate your blood, and some of you people out there can't, right. and you're convinced that you need to remove or reduce your iron content, which I think almost all of you do, and there's a pretty strong reason to do it, uh, you can get what's called a therapeutic phlebotomy, and you have to pay a small fee for that because they don't recycle your blood and put it back into the circulation, into the population. They actually dispose of it. So it's called, and your doctor can write a prescription for that. Or if you're a phlebotomist, you can do it yourself. <laughs> That's right. 
but there but you also have options you know there's products like uh, i detox ip6 mm -hmm. lactoferrin a apo lactoferrin yeah i mean yeah. and you you they're, they're so far inferior to oh, no, no question and there's a little, and there's a cost to them i mean lactoferrin can be really expensive yes that's true yeah. the the thing is when they changed milk they changed our ability to to regulate iron I mean, when you when you kill 50 enzymes and some of the big ones are you know ferrooxidase lactoferrin things like that um because of the um heating process well then you've just changed the, the physiology of our metabolism yeah yeah i'm not a huge fan of milk for adults mm -hmm. uh but certainly if they're going to have it it needs to be raw milk there's no question about it from ideally grass-fed organic cows uh, but I'm a huge fan of butter, <laughs> a huge fan of butter. And I have nearly a half a pound a day. <laughs> yeah. I, I literally 75% of my diet is fat and, uh, I, I'm there's, there, there's very few populations in the world that have more than 50% saturated fat. I'm my, my current is about 46% saturated fat, big believer, you know, cause saturated fat doesn't have those unsaturated bonds that can be oxidized and damaged and, and spin off free radicals. That's exactly right. And, uh, and you no doubt know about the desaturase enzymes and, mm -hmm. and what the, yeah, battery, yeah. Yeah, right. the copper battery there. So I, I think what's, what's uh, intriguing is so much of our metabolism does in fact rely on copper, but it's not, there's not one handy reference. It's, it's like they took this knowledge and they blew it up into a thousand parts. And there are just many gifted scientists who've been studying it, but there isn't really this composite body of- Okay, products. I'm sorry, we went back again, because I, I wanted to do this issue with the ferritin. So how, how do we differentiate between okay. a menstruating woman and a child who, I mean, if, if, if they have a really large blood loss, which could be related to copper deficiency because they're not utilizing iron properly. Right. Um, you know, how do we make the distinction? Because typically, and you'd mentioned a pretty astounding uh, factoid that this expert in, in ferritin says the ideal ferritin is zero. Uh, in, in clinical medicine though, anyone with a ferritin or 20 is, is, is assumed to have iron deficiency. So help us resolve that dilemma, at least diagnostic dilemma in the minds of almost any conventional medical physician. Great, great question. Here's how I explained it to the Amish farmers to make sure they understood it. I said, if you want to know how many bales of hay you have in your barn, would you go out in the field and start counting them? And they went, no. Well, that's what they're doing with blood tests. The ferritin protein is designed to be inside the cell. And what Dr. Um, Kel was pointing out is that under intense inflammation, <clears throat> there's a change in how the lysosomes work to break down the ferritin protein and then allow for the recycling of the iron. And, and we're getting at some really esoteric physiology. I'm, I'm gonna to try to keep it real simple. Um, but the important thing is the narrative is that serum ferritin is an accurate indication of ferritin in the, in the cell. Mm -hmm. No, that's not, not true. true. No. Okay, that's and the that's assumption. What, 
That's the assumption. And, and it's somewhat similar to what you're known for is magnesium and, and that serum magnesium is relatively a poor indicator of the more important one, which is cellular magnesium, which we measure by uh, RBC magnesium. Exactly. And so this idea that, that looking inside the blood is going to be an indicator of what's happening inside the cell is that's uh, a leap of faith that is not but is, are those levels in some type of equilibrium where you can make an estimate so that there's some type of correlation that, I mean, if you do get a level, single digit ferritin levels, which, you know, would bring off massive red, red bell alerts, uh, that there may be something else going on because it's so unusual to see it in ferritin or 20. Right. So the thing is, when the, my sweet spot is between 20 and 50, that's mm -hmm. When Dr. Kell said zero, I said, I, I don't think people would believe me if I said zero. So I yeah, yeah, yeah. went back into the research and 20 to 50 seems to be an acceptable tolerance. What I've learned is that when in the, in the blood testing, when the, the serum ferritin for a woman gets above 150, that's when the red flag goes off for women. And when it gets above 300, that's when the red flag goes off for men. So that's, that's the easy side. And it, and it usually correlates with liver inflammatory activity. And there's some, some dysregulation, some stressor, it might be diet, it might be just environmental stress, it could be a number of factors. So that's the easy side. It's taken years to get a better understanding of what does low ferritin represent? Mm -hmm. And probably the best understanding of it is there are two authors, Orosio, A-R-O-S-S-I, and Warwood, W-O-R-W, OOD uh, in two separate publications. And then Kell uh, has, has also written about it, Douglas Kell, that when serum ferritin drops below 20, it's a sign of parasites. Interesting. And <clears throat> the, the biggest, I'm trying to think of how, how can I get us a, a notch deeper without overwhelming people, but there's a, a protein or a peptide that many people probably heard of called hepcidin. Mm -hmm. and, and it's called the, the iron hormone. Well, I think that's being really generous. Uh, <laughs> it's, it comes from the HAMP gene. And what does HAMP stand for? Hepcidin antimicrobial peptide. So it's really responding to excess iron and it's trying to stop um, the availability of iron to the pathogens. That's really what I was trying to do. Mm -hmm. And what is important for folks to understand is that in a state of vitamin A deficiency, and that would be most people who are eating a low fat diet, that hepcidin takes off like a rocket. Well, what does hepcidin do? It shuts down iron recycling. And the biggest impact it has is in the spleen. Hep hepcidin is always talked about with enterocytes in the intestine, mm -hmm. hepatocytes in the liver, and then the splenocytes in the spleen. Well, 95% of its impact is in the spleen. That's a big deal. That's, that's a major big deal. And so we need to understand the subtle nuance of what, what, what kind of diet is this person eating? What kind of, of stressors are they under? What are their macro minerals? What are their micro minerals that we can pick up in the blood? And when when hepcidin, excuse me, when when ferritin 
starts to go down, what it's actually doing is it's affecting the ability of the tissue to make ferritin protein. And that's usually from parasites. And it's in the literature. And not a lot of people are, are familiar with that aspect of the literature. And so this idea that low ferritin is a marker for low iron, well, it's a marker for iron dysregulation. It's a, it's a marker for low iron, possibly in the blood, but it doesn't necessarily mean that iron isn't jammed and stuck in the mitochondria and in the label iron pool of the cell. And that's where I think people need to broaden their thinking is that there's more to the story. The, mm -hmm. the, the people, the classmates that I had at Denison who got into medical school, the really smart people, um, they all got A's in calculus to a person, every one of them. And now they're using rulers to measure iron status. And I would argue it's the most complicated, most sophisticated and least understood part of human physiology. It is not a dipstick function. Mm -hmm. Iron is not low or high. Iron is dysregulated or it's functional. And if it doesn't have adequate supplies of copper, back to LVM and Sherman, if you don't have copper, you don't have iron metabolism. And, and the, the fact is these two metals don't have separate metabolism. They are joined at the hip of the uh, master antioxidant protein, ceruloplasmin. And that's what gives the metals their integrity is ceruloplasmin and its ability. What, what is its gift? It, it, it expresses many enzymes, but the most important ones are the ones that regulate iron and oxygen. Copper is the only element on the planet that can manage the two most reactive elements in our body. Copper is the only one. All the others are kind of um, observers, if you will. And so copper is central to the process of keeping oxidative stress at a moderate level, but optimizing energy production. That's, that's the, the magic sauce, is making sure that there's a healthy balance between energy and exhaust, just like there is in our car. We're going to produce exhaust. And so it's like we've got to be able to optimize both the energy and the exhaust. I want to get back to the low ferritin, but the <laughs> fact that you mentioned ceruloplasm, the copper enzyme, right. is the master antioxidant, is reminded me that as a question I had for you. And the question is, how would you compare ceruloplasm with two other antioxidants, which, which are frequently given that attribute, which would be melatonin and glutathione? No, they're very, they're very important. Glutathione, I call the master greeter. It's, okay. it's the uh, component in the cell that is going to grab the reactive elements, not the least of which is copper, mm -hmm. but it plays a very critical role in, in keeping oxidative stress at a minimum inside the cell. Melatonin, master antioxidant inside the mitochondria. Really, it's in Okay, so... So inside the mitochondria, that's where it rains. Exactly. Absolutely. Okay. The, the thing with ferritin is it's, it's, a very, it's very frustrating, Dr. McCullough, because we have 50 years of disinformation that started in 1972. And we've been pummeled with messaging that ferritin is an indication of iron status. And it's like, uh, it's a lot more complicated than that. Okay, so I don't want to go too deep because, and you can go deep. It's it's obvious. I mean, you've already quoted at least a dozen, if not more, studies, and they, they are not. I can assure you, folks, on 
on note cards that he's reading from in front of him that they are in his brain embedded because he has a photographic memory. So we, I know you can go deep, but I don't, you know, we, we have a, yeah. So the, the key point is though, that I wanted to understand that I think is really a crucial one is that in your mind, is there ever a, an indication or a case where you can use it, uh, it especially with the clinical history of iron loss, uh, like an acute blood loss for, for some reason or chronic GI bleeding or heavy menstrual periods. I mean, in that context, would a low ferritin at least be in the realm of the consideration of, of correlating with iron deficiency? Low ferritin would be one factor. I, I think there have been so many mistakes made on just ferritin only testing that I've renamed it Aritin because it, it's just too, <laughs> too fraught with, with problems. But the thing is, we need to have the broader context. We need to understand, you know, low ferritin in the context of normal hemoglobin, well, that's a different discussion, isn't it? And, you know, low ferritin with normal serum iron. That's a different discussion. And more often than not, I see people who have normal hemoglobin, normal serum iron, and maybe some kind of dysregulation in their ferritin. What that's telling me is that there's more organ pathophysiology, particularly around the liver. And <clears throat> what I think is important for people to understand, there's actually four different types of ferritin. So we have I've referred to two of them earlier. We have ferritin heavy chain and ferritin light chain. Heavy chain only works with copper. You've got to have ferrooxidase enzyme function for the heavy chain to work, for the ATM back and forth to work, got to have copper. Then we have light chain. Then we have something called mitoferrin that's inside the mitochondria. It's a heavy chain, got to have copper. And then we have a fourth kind called serum ferritin. And technically what's happening is the ferritin's coming through the liver and it's going into the lysosome to be broken down and there's not enough juice there. There's not enough energy to do that. And what happens is the iron in the ferritin protein inside the liver gets dumped. The iron is discharged 10 amino acids get cleaved off of that ferritin and then it's secreted into the bloodstream. And so I talk about it as being empty shotgun shells. And so this idea that serum ferritin, and again, this isn't like, this isn't me making stuff up. This is me reading the literature and saying, there's a wow factor to this. And, and having conversations with people like Douglas Kell to say, I really do understand what you're saying. And, and yet it's not, I don't think it's properly taught in doctor school, at least with the totality of factors that you and I've had the, the opportunity to discuss today. That's what's mm -hmm. missing is there's a, there's a, a very carefully scripted uh, education that doctors get, what's high or low and, and, and just get more iron if you need it. And wait a minute, there's, there are a lot of variables here. It's not like it's infinite. Maybe there's 10 or 20 that we ought yeah. to be mindful of. And if we don't, and if we don't another 10 or 20 that we don't even know about. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. And this idea that it's a dipstick. Oh, yeah, you need more oil. You need more iron. Like, wait, whoa, let's let's talk about why is okay. my iron not working properly? That's the real question that people need to be asking. All right. So uh, just to summarize it, because 
it can get it, it can go down the rabbit hole real quickly and become very confusing. Um, generally, you're okay with using ferritin as an assessment tool, even a primitive one and crude one, and reflective of not the more important status of intracellular iron iron uh, stores. But if you're, as long as you're in the 20 to 50 range, you're probably in the ballpark. Yes, there are other measures you can use or blood tests like uh, serum iron, total iron binding capacity and serum transfer. But typically if you follow that without going deep, you're okay. If you're under 20, possibly it could be some serious issue, but you need to see someone who knows this at a deeper level, like you were mentioning. To, to really sort out the details and not to jump to iron deficiency and start taking probably one of those potentially toxic nutrient supplements that we, we have, which is iron, iron. And I would just build on that to say, I would never use ferritin alone as an assessment of iron status. But it's, if you were just to use one, would it be a crude? Would it be safe to say that you're in agreement with just using that to monitor like your levels? I mean, I if you're if in that range that you don't really need to get more aggressive, that you're probably okay? It, no, uh, you do not agree with that. No, less than 10% of iron is in ferritin inside the cell, not okay. in the blood, inside the cell. 70% hemoglobin. Mm -hmm. that, again, that's what, that's what was used for over 100 years. I think that's a more powerful indication. Why? Because it's, it's a bigger pool of iron, and it's constantly being recycled, which is what so iron... So if you have higher hemoglobin, would that be suggestive of higher iron content? Absolutely. Oh, it absolutely okay. does. Yeah. Okay. No, like when I, when I first really understood this, what, what happened was I was beginning to get into this work about six years ago as it relates to the iron side. And my wife asked me a really important question. She says, so how is your iron? I went, I don't know. I've never checked. <laughs> this was in, in December of 2015. And, um, and my, my ferritin, my, my hemoglobin was 18.3. Oh my gosh. And That's my Crazy. I know, I know. And my ferritin was 267. And oh, you were iron toxic on steroids. Absolutely. And what do you think inspired me to dig deeper to find out what's Oh, geez. You were, when, you were. And, and when I found out about the hemoglobin, 18.3, I was at, at a blood center. And, and it's a good thing I was wearing brown pants. <laughs> she, said, she said, you're a lucky guy. I said, what do you mean? She said, the threshold is 18.5. If you oh, were 18, what, four? 18.3. Okay. And, and that, that next year, eight, uh, 2016, I donated six times. Yeah, you could. Yeah, that's have a hemoglobin. Most people can't because their hemoglobin drops so low that. Exactly. You know, but the thing is, for my whole life, I'd had high bilirubin. And, and I, had a, I had an internist for 25 years, great, just a gifted internist. And he would always see my bilirubin, it was like between two and three, he says, uh, you're not taking iron, are you? Two and three. Oh my gosh. And and you know what? My my bilirubin today is perfectly normal because of regular blood donation. Yes. Cause protocol. Now, how, how often are you doing them now? How about up here? Two or three times a quarter? quarter. Wow. Yes, so quarter. four times a year. Wow. How long do you think it takes the average? I mean, you were in your 60s when you had this assessed. So how long do you think it's going to take to deplete your iron stores? What's your guess? Probably the rest of my life. Really, really. Here's here's a rule of thumb. This is fascinating. Um, on my on my 65th birthday, I I called up Robert Crichton, 
who is the dean of iron biology. He, there's no one bigger than Robert Crichton mm -hmm. on the planet. And I, I said, Dr. Crichton, I'm, I just want to thank you for your body of knowledge. And oh, by the way, today's my 65th birthday. Would you send me a signed copy of your latest textbook? He said, really, I'd be happy to. And, and so we started having this conversation. And he said, uh, you know that we accumulate one milligram of iron every day we're on the planet. I said, yes, sir, I've, I've read your, your uh, textbooks and your, your articles. He said, good. So here's a good exercise for you, Dr. McCullough. Get out your calculator, take your age, and multiply it times 365. Mm -hmm. And what's So this accumulation is in your tissues. Exactly. It's in your wow. tissues. So mine's, mine's 25,000, and it's supposed to be 5,000. So I'm somewhere between 20. Oh, so your earlier statements were the ideal. They weren't what typically occurs exactly. in populations. I didn't understand that. No, exactly. that's a bit, that's an important differentiation. And, and the whole field of gerontology misses that completely. And this isn't just, this is not Robert Crichton. This is Robert Crichton, Douglas Kell, uh, Gutteridge and Howell, okay. Weinberg, all these, um, Zakarsky at Dartmouth, all these big iron researchers all agreed on one milligram of iron added to your frame every day. So how, what, how much iron are you losing when you donate a pint of blood? Um, if you have, let's assume you have 50% saturation, mm -hmm. uh, you're going to lose 250 milligrams. Wow. So that's basically you no know, three quarters of a year yeah. for every, so you're, you're knocking off three years every year. Yeah. From yeah, so you, that is the rest of your life, unless you're going to live a long, long time. <laughs> and, and we all we all have challenges that we're born with. Well, my mom was an alcoholic and a smoker, and my mm -hmm. dad was manic depressive with schizophrenic tendencies. Well, though I've trust me, I've researched those conditions. Iron toxicity rules those conditions. Mm -hmm. So I was born to an iron toxic uh, lineage. It goes back many generations, and so I'm working regularly. To, in a very methodical way. To God, this is, this is fascinating. And this is going to save a lot of people's lives. If they have a deep appreciation, understanding of the importance of just simply donating your blood. I mean, it, it's going to go such a long way. You can't, you can't even compare this to almost taking any, any supplements, except for copper. <laughs> well, no, that, that would be the only thing I would say is that if, if people understand the importance of lowering the, the iron footprint and increasing the copper footprint yeah. That becomes this axis of vitality and longevity that very few people talk about. And I think I, I'm just so grateful to have this conversation because it's it's rare to have someone embrace it and say, oh, my gosh, now I know I see what you're saying. It's like it's amazing. So I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then another thing that you're unusual with in respect to appreciation, understanding this, there's almost no clinician that I'm aware of that doesn't acknowledge at a minimum that vegetable seed oils are dangerous. Right. and should be avoided, but it's the rare person in that community group that really understands the, the seriousness of how damaging they truly are. Right. And I'm wondering, you're one of them, you, you really get it at a deep level. Although I think you could have been a little more aggressive in your book and just <laughs> like harping on these things. So you, you may not be aware. I was leaving you the room to, to pick up the slack. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's just, and it's not that I, I'm brilliant, but I'm working with a, a clinician, Chris Kenobi, who's oh. actually written a definitive book on this and it's, we're gonna publish it in a few months. And I'm just in the, right now, the process of re reviewing the draft manuscript. 
And some of the data he's compiled, it, it just blows your mind, absolutely blows your mind. So anyway, you, but you understand, so I, the reason I'm mentioning this is I'd like to get your take on your perspective on the, the importance. And I know they're synergistically toxic and pathologic, but if you could, if you could pick which was worse, iron overload or PUFA overload, which would it be? No, and I've had this conversation many times. Um, iron is the match that lights the, the uh, lipid peroxidation. Oh, so if you had the PUFA and then there's no iron, it's not going to be as much of an issue. See, the, the, the part that people don't know, and I think you probably do, but just to amplify it, you know, um, Eisenhower has his heart attack. We get put mm -hmm. on a low fat diet. Ansel Keys flexes his muscles. And so they were taking cholesterol out, right? Well, actually, what they were taking out was retinol, but no one told you. <laughs> and so, so then there, I, I came across an amazing study. It was in, um, they started adding iron filings in 1941. Mm -hmm. great, a great book, if you haven't read it. Is, is that in all processed foods or just cereals? Uh, all processed foods. Uh, wow. And, and, there, and there's nine different forms of iron being added, and only nine of them are carcinogenic. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the thing, in 1941, they started adding, adding insult to injuries, bad enough as it is, and then they go right. and add this on top of it. So they're adding iron. And I came across a study from Tulane University, 1951, 10 years after they'd been adding iron to the food system. And they were shocked at how high people's cholesterol were. They, they, they couldn't understand it. Well, now we do understand it because of the work of like Leslie Clavet and others that began to say, wait, if you don't have copper, you're gonna, your cholesterol is going to spike. But it wasn't the whole issue. There's a nuance to, to high cholesterol. Cholesterol is supposed to be in the liver. It's not supposed to be in your blood. We're back to serum ferritin again. Cholesterol is, is in the liver because it needs to be made into what? Hormones and other factors. Mm -hmm. And the part that everyone missed is it isn't just the cholesterol, it's that the cholesterol gets rusty. Mm -hmm. and, and the part that's a very important, number one cause of death on the planet, heart disease, that's, mm -hmm. that hasn't changed in almost um, a century now, and, or, or more than a century. And so- Well, interestingly, let me, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but this is an yeah. important point. It's not only not changed, but prior to 1900, it was an, a very rare disease. There was literally like less than 10 documented cases of heart attacks in, in the history of the world below 1900, as far as I know. And, you know, and, and Osler was, was, was renowned for, for mentioning this. So it was an unknown disease. And it's not that they didn't, you know, some people address or are concerned with the fact that it may have been they missed the diagnosis. No, these guys were sharp clinicians. They knew what they were saying. It wasn't there. What changed? Farming changed. What do they add to farming? NPK. What does NPK do? It blocks copper uptake. It was after World War One, right? The first yeah, uh, right, the, absolutely. The and, and so the 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 key is people are always wondering where did this plaque come from? Well, the endothelial cells inside the arteries they need to make energy, right? They they got to make ATP. They've got to create water, and if they can't do that, one of the one of the functions that starts to break down inside their mitochondria is cholesterol recycling. And then what happens is macrophages come to try to clean up that mess. And what do they do? They turn into foam cells. And then the foam cell, it's just, that's the origin of 
the cholesterol plaque is from an energy breakdown inside the cells because there's too much iron and the body can't recycle it properly. And then the whole thing begins to cause the block in the artery. It's, fa it's absolutely fascinating when you begin to look at it from an energy paradigm and not from a disease paradigm. Well, and the seed oils are really important too, because oh, I mean, they, they came up about the same time, literally in the 1860s or so, at least in the United States. In some countries, it's interesting, like China, they really were not prevalent. And, you know, there's a lot of confusion on this and that people associate high carbs, especially a lot of natural medical, medical clinicians or physicians, yeah. they, a high carb diet is what's causing all the sugar is, is the issue. But if you look at this China, they were close to where the United States was and as, as recently as 1966, they had virtually no seed oils and very little sugar. And, and literally they have virtually no carbs. I mean, they have a very low sugar diet. It's like they have five grams, one teaspoon of sugar a day. So they don't have a high carb diet. Yet when you look at their ingestion of seed oils, which started in 66 and going up, it directly correlates with the massive increases of obesity, cancers, and heart disease. So it's yeah. definitely the seed oils, but that's a, that's a, that's a tangent. The point I wanted to make is as the seed oil started to penetrate the population, they get integrated into lipoproteins. And the lipoproteins, of course, is what carries the cholesterol. And that gets susceptible, susceptible to oxidation because they have these unsaturated yeah. bonds in which the iron is a huge reason that, that, they're, yeah. that, that they're oxidized. Yeah. And, and I was, the article I was reading this morning from 1925 by Burroughs, um, they were using corn oil to cause cancer. I mean, it's, 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 it's absolutely arresting to say, oh my gosh, they, they really understood what was going on and they knew how toxic those, those uh, seed oils were, but they just kept on plugging. It was amazing. Yes, exchanging convenience for health is what they've done. And we're doing it in different ways with uh, technology to exchanging convenience for physiological damage like EMFs and surveillance and privacy and all those. But anyway, it's a whole different topic. So we want to get back into the health because that's that's where we're both really passionate about and have you know really insights that most people don't, and and we can share them with people that can make a dramatic difference in their life. So, what I'd like to to really focus on some of the ways. I mean, you've made a, a magnificent case for the importance of copper, and and so people are beginning to appreciate they need to do this. So I think we need to help them understand how they can increase one of them. And there's an interesting point that you make in your book, you have the first step is to stop supplements. So I don't agree with all of the recommendations, but some of them I certainly do, yep. at least in general, because the disagreement resolves more in subtle details, which you don't have time to dialogue about. But one of them that I want to address is stop vitamin C. And that's not generic. That's just, it's actually stopping ascorbic acid, which most okay. people perceive as vitamin C, because in fact, taking whole food vitamin C Very is good. the answer because it has an enzyme tyrosinase, which has lots of copper in it that can help restore your copper levels and, and actually provide uh, vitamin C in its, in its necessary form in some of the bioflavonoids like asperidine and rutin. So why don't you expand on that? And, and I want you to dive, take that as a platform to dive in all the other ways that we can increase our copper levels. Sure. So a lot of confusion about ascorbic acid versus whole food vitamin C, as you know. And again, um, 
the vitamin C complex is like the cars we drive. There's an engine, there's a steering wheel, there's four wheels, and there's a cover. And that's the, that's the structure and makeup of the vitamin C complex. Ascorbic acid is the cover of the car and no moving parts. And this is missed by a lot of scientists and clinicians. And when you get into the subtlety of the research, you find out that ascorbic acid is actually prooxidant, vitamin C complex, antioxidant. Again, any, anything that has copper is going to be antioxidant. The antioxidant enzyme capacity uh, is really dependent on, on copper, bioavailable copper. And so uh, food-based forms, very, very important. And the, the challenge we've got, Dr. Arcola, is we're back to your earlier question. How do we remineralize the soil? And what, you know, what are we going to do about this copper thing? You know, if, if the farmers are not actively thinking about restoring the mineral status of the soil, the regenerative farming, is, it's beginning to take hold now. But, but again, it's, on, it's in its infancy. That's our challenge is finding uh, the committed farmers that really want to do that. So then we're, we're, we have to turn to supplemental forms. And, and there are maybe a handful, maybe more of whole food vitamin C complexes that are available. That's very important. That's a very important source. Um, but another, another source is bee pollen. You, you, can't, you can't pollinate a flower and mm -hmm. you can't pollinate an animal if you don't have pollen. And, and you got to have copper. Copper is essential in that process. And a lot of people don't realize that there's a lot of oxidative stress to bring the egg and sperm together. And if there isn't copper there to diffuse that, you're not going to get the union that's so, so critical. And so when people are having trouble conceiving, it's a copper issue. And, and where did I learn that? Australian sheep farmers. If they, if they have, um, if they're not getting the offspring that they want from their herd, there's only one mineral they add to the feed. It's called copper. And like that, they, they start to populate their, their herd. Um, so bee pollen is not just a source of copper. It's, you know, it's got many nutrients, but B vitamins especially, which is very good. And we talked about the importance of bee flower. Again, we're back to is the, when, when copper is in the soil, it's going to produce grass. It's going to have both vitamin C and beta carotene. A unit of, of, of healthy grass is going to have 14 times more beta carotene than a um, comparable unit of carrots. And a unit of grass is going to have 18 times more vitamin C than a comparable unit of oranges. So that's a good thing to know, is that, that the grass that our ancestors' animals used to graze on used to be a very rich source of copper when the soils weren't being abused by farming chemicals. And I, I just had a, a um, podcast the other day with someone who told me that glyphosate is actually the 10th the most, most toxic chemical in the farm. And I'm like, there's something worse than glyphosate. That's scary to even think about. So <clears throat> the, the changes in farming have, have altered the availability of copper in the soil, in the plant, in the animal and in the human. So that, you know, that's a significant topic. Maybe that's another conversation. Yeah, because glyphosate is specific, particularly pernicious for copper because it's a, key, a middle chelator. Absolutely. That's how it works. Right. 
yeah. you know, it sucks the copper right out. Absolutely. Down Fine. to a pH of one, down to a pH of one, which is devastating. That's what this original application. It was originally done to right. decalcify, not decalcify, but remove the minerals from the inside of these tanks. And, and the, then, and the, and the industrial pipes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> do, you, do you have a problem with that? <laughs> Crazy, but I want to get back to vitamin C for a moment. Yeah, uh, and 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 I think you'll be very pleased to know that I had the intuitive insight to plant. I like cherries, and, and I live in Florida, so obviously Bing cherries don't work too well down here because you have to have a cold. Uh, so I planted a, a Barbados cherry, which is otherwise oh, known as acerola cherries, and I have several cool. bushes. Right. So I mean, I could I literally in harvest time, which is actually. Is we have about an eight-month harvest time, so it's it's unbelievable. I mean, it continuously produces throughout the year, and in peak harvest time, I'm getting a gallon of these cherries a day, a gallon, and each cherry has 80 milligrams of whole food vitamin C. So, uh, but you've inspired me because I realized that you know I've done a lot of soil amendments, but I haven't specifically addressed copper. So I'm going to not put copper on the soil. I'm actually going to put a foliar application of copper. And I got to figure out the concentration to do that with, but that should radically improve the quality of the copper in these acerola cherries that are being generated. And you so, might, do, you might do a little digging real quick. The, the, the copper concentration, as I understand it, one of, again, one of my Amish farmer friends has looked into this very carefully. The co copper concentration is highest in the stem you might you might do a little digging around that and see if the there's stem something. of the cherry. Yeah, even more so. No, fruit. It's interesting. Normally, you always spit those out. I know. Do you think there's do you think there's value That's having that stem? He just brought it up the other day. I was I was absolutely flat footed. I said seriously. So yeah, I, I've got to look into it myself. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. So, but I think the foliar application is going to be really helpful. But the, oh, the point I wanted to make is uh, that you know, taking vitamins and I've recommended even because we sell vitamins and I, I said, this is not the supplement you want to take on a regular basis. And I certainly don't take it, but it's valuable and useful, at least from my perspective. This is what I want to discuss with you as a therapeutic adjunct and it's far safer alternative as an intervention for acute infections than drugs and antibiotics or even antivirals. So uh, and we have diseases like septic shock and obviously COVID where the mortality rate in septic shock is like 80%, 80%. So the people who get it die. I mean, it's, it's shocking, kills a shocking number of people every year. Yet we know that if you get them early and you inject intravenous ascorbic acid and that whole food vitamin C, they recover and are able to live, live the rest of their lives. So I think as a therapeutic intervention acutely is as as almost like a drug. It's probably very useful, but for long term, right. get your butt down to Florida and grow some acerola cherries because you can't buy them at the store anywhere. You can buy and process this whole food vitamin C, but ideally you want to eat the whole food. But let's take that up a notch. Yeah. Okay. One of the, one of the most important studies I came across was from 1958 by Martins, M-A-R-T-E-N-S at all. And they were studying how to cure people of schizophrenia. Which is for, for people who don't know, um, schizophrenia is when iron affects adrenaline. Mm -hmm. People who are in a schizophrenic state are very fear-based fear and it, it, it changes the chemistry of the adrenaline. We'll just leave it at that. And so in this study, they had 34 patients that were administered one shot of ceruloplasmin protein. 
how many people were cured of schizophrenia with one shot? You can administer ceruloplasma as an injection that's available? Back in, the, fi that. Back in the 50s. Oh, is it available now? <laughs> no. Of course not. So <laughs> it's, a big, it's, a, it's a huge protein, isn't it? It's massive. Yeah, 1,066 amino acids. But yeah. 30 of 34 patients cured of schizophrenia. So I would suggest, I think there may be even more powerful alternatives than ascorbic acid. I, I get your point. Absolutely. If we're, if we're forced between, if we're on the train tracks with Sophie's choice, and we got to choose between this and this, yeah, I would, I would go with ascorbic acid. Yeah, because most of the people, they're not even doing the basics, you know, right. so they're, they're right. in a, between a rock and a hard place. So yeah, it's not the optimal, but it's better than dying, eh? and it's better than being submitted to these drugs, which will ruin your microbiome for months or years. But I, but I would say that I think it's time, again, we've been through two years of rather protracted insanity. You know, we all, I think, can agree on that. But I think it's time for this copper message to get out. That's what this conversation is introducing. And I think there are, there are forms of bioavailable copper via ceruloplasma. Like you, you can actually buy it if it's for research. Mm. You, can actually, you can actually test the ferrooxidase assay it's, the, it's called the ferrooxidase colorimetric assay. Mm. It's a whopping $4. Really? But it's, but it's barred by the FDA. You're not allowed to do it unless, unless you're studying four-legged rats and mice and rabbits and things like that, but not humans. And it's the yeah, most- from what, what, what supplier provides that? Um, uh, okay. It begins with an A and I'm blanking on it. I apologize. Okay, well, maybe you can, you'll, 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 with your brain, you'll come up with just email. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll remember, but the thing is that this is a whole, basically, doctor education is like Hogwarts Academy. And there's one word you can't say in Hogwarts Academy, Voldemort. And copper and ceruloplasmin and ferrooxidase are the Voldemort of medicine. And if we had access to these really powerful and natural forms of bioavailable copper, we would be having a very different conversation on this planet and in this podcast. So just curious, obviously it's not commercially available and could be obtained, but with some challenges. Uh, do you think that that would be an intriguing biohack is to inject some ceruloplasmin? Uh, because especially if you've been on a lifestyle that has really radically reduced it and you have massive stores of iron and got PUFA up the wazoo and PUFA is almost as bad as iron. I mean, yes. It, yes. it takes you seven years. I think the half-life is seven years after it's integrated, integrated to your cell membranes. I, again, so, I, the, the, I think it would be the ultimate biohack, but I think really what, what ceruloplasmin does is it takes us back to factory settings. Mother mm -hmm. Nature never designed us to be the way we are today. Mother Nature never thought we would have food the way we have today or the medications that we're using. But what, what the ceruloplasmin protein, it goes back, the, the, the construct of it is, they're called plastocyanin enzymes. Well, those go back to the very beginning of time. And there's six to eight of them in ceruloplasmin. And I think that's significant. And, there's a, and, and photosynthesis depends on plastocyanin. I don't know whether you know that or not. You mm. have photosystem two and photosystem one. And the electrons have got to get from two to one. And, and what shuttles it over? Plastocyanin enzyme. 
It's a copper mm. enzyme that enables photosynthesis to work. Well, people don't like to talk about that, but, the, but anytime we've got to move electrons and we've got to deal with oxygen, and we've got to deal with iron, and we've got to deal with these really reactive components of our environment, we better have bioavailable copper to, to grease the skids of the transaction. So what are your other favorite other than bee pollen, liver, whole food, vitamin C, and, you know, and reduce your, your iron content because that free iron is going to just, you know, radically deplete your copper, copper levels. You know, um, it, I think it's really important for people to have lots of fat in their diet. I think we've talked about that. Um, you, you want to make sure. Saturated that, fat. Saturated <laughs> fat. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Or monounsaturated. Yes. And um, people need to understand that um, the organ meats, organ meats, again, what happened? Our ancestors used to eat organ meats and feed the muscle meats to the dogs. Now we flipped it. And now we eat muscle meats and feed the organ meats to the dogs. Organ meats are where all the energy is. That's where all the, that's where all the minerals are, especially the copper, you know, liver, uh, kidney, tongue, brain. I mean, just people don't understand what the, the role of that particular mineral is, particularly as it relates to making energy. And, and the, there's, no, there's no part of our anatomy that's more important than the brain. The question I would add, though, is that, especially in America, where a little is good and more is a lot better, yeah. is that, yes, I couldn't agree with you more wholeheartedly that we need organ meats, but you need them in moderation. You can't go and have like a pound Absolutely. of liver Absolutely. I think you're going to be, go to the races. No, because there's a toxicity about the balance. There's a Goldilocks dose that you want. Exactly. And I think our, our ancestors knew that. I mean, I grew up, my mom was from the country and she was, she wasn't a, a five-star chef, but she knew how to cook, you know, nose to tail. And we had, we had very basic food. So I was at least raised with that, but you're absolutely right. We've got to be, we've got to be careful. And I think the, the mistake that a lot of people make who don't feel well, again, what's the origin of all diseases? Fatigue. It's the number one reason why people go see their doctor. And what do people want to do? They want to get well yesterday. So they, they want to do it overnight and the body doesn't work that way. And so we need to be very uh, careful and very disciplined about how we introduce that. And that's really what the, the root cause protocol is trying to do is introduce people to the right components. What are the stops? What are the starts? And let's introduce them in a phased fashion so that people can begin to build up this copper in a very appropriate way. And try to restore that as, as mother nature would have intended. That's great. Now in your book, you address, you know, all the, from my perspective, as I mentioned earlier, the really major heavy hitters, like optimizing sleep, uh, light exposure, sunlight specifically to op, you know, to improve the version of retinol that's going to be active, you know, activated essentially and get vitamin D and mel mitochondrial melatonin. So uh, why don't you highlight some of the other ones that support the, the increasing the copper and decreasing the iron, which is so crucial? Well, the, the key is that copper is a fat soluble mineral. That's interesting. How, how, is, how is that? I mean, can you help us understand that? Because that's a, an odd term, you would think them as being relatively neutral. Exactly. But, but it is lipophilic. It loves fat. And again, there's this incredible axis between copper and fat, especially retinol. And so if, we, again, it's no accident that they put us on a low fat diet. And so suddenly, if you don't have fat in your diet, your ability to absorb 
especially copper, is going to plummet. Well, if you don't have copper, you begin to have more fatigue, you're going to have more symptoms. And so fat becomes a very, and again, it's got to be the right kind of fat. But the key is, if you don't have that fat in your diet, and, you know, I spent many years doing my research at Starbucks, and I would listen to what people would drink, what the order was. It's always skinny latte. I'll have that with a skinny latte. Like, no, you really want Breve. That's really what you want. And, and I'm not pushing, you know, um, homogenized dairy. But the point is, people don't understand the, the fat issue. And well, so, butter would have been better. <laughs> that, well, of course. I always have butter in my coffee. But um, you're, not, you're not interested in the, in the protein. You want the fat. You want the fat. And, and a lot higher fat percentage in butter than there is in milk, even whole milk or cream even. But we, but we have Amish butter, which is 90% butter fat. And Land O'Lakes is 10% butter fat. Big difference. Really? really? Big difference. And so, and, and. Uh, That's dramatic. I had no idea it was that much of a, what is, what is the other 80% in Land O'Lakes butter? It's not butter fat. Butter. It's, it's not, again, we, we have to be really discriminating when we're choosing our food, right? Mm -hmm. And, and again, carry gold is somewhere in the middle. So we just have to, once you begin to learn how important the fat is, as you, as you are really emphasizing, it, it, it begins to change the whole metabolism of the body. And you can't, the other side of it though, is if you can't absorb copper without fat, the flip side is you cannot metabolize fat without copper. I'm still perplexed because that's quite an astonishing claim that Land O'Lakes is only 10% butter fat because it, it, I mean, they'd be violating label claims. I mean, butter has a caloric density of nine calories per gram. So if it's water, it's zero. So, I mean, they have a label claim that, the, you know, that suggests it's butter. It's, I, it's fat. I just know that it's a, it's a much lower concentration. It's about 10 to 12% for commercially available butters. It's much lower than- I, I love, Send me the article or the study on it, because I'm sure you've got it. There's, I mean, you're just a wealth of knowledge there, so- that is very, I mean, that deserves like a whole article. I mean, that's like a scam. So that, I mean, because no, we're, we're pushing people away from PUFA into butter primarily. That's a far better. I, I suspect even Land O'Lakes butter is better than safflower, sunflower, canola oil. Again, the, the challenge we've got is that um, when we go to a restaurant, what color is the butter? Yeah. A lot of restaurants have butter the color of your shirt, right? And it's supposed to be the color of this tulip, really deep yellow. That means it has more beta carotene in it that got made into retinol. And or even the eggs too. With the, with exactly, the, absolutely like same, same principle. And it turns out you put, there's basically three cows that are used in dairy. You've got the Holsteins, the Guernseys and the Jerseys. But it turns out there's a genetic difference between Holsteins and the other two. The Holsteins cannot take up beta carotene at the same rate that the Holsteins and the, or excuse me, that the Guernseys and the Jerseys can. And that's why their butter fat content is dramatically different than the Holsteins. Well, where's most, where's most butter coming from? Holstein. Yeah. And again, it, we it's did the basics. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just the nuance of understanding the, the nutrient content of the food that we're depending on. I'm assuming that if the cows are grazed on yeah. grass that has been had an application of copper sulfate to the soil at the 10 to 15 pounds per acre, that that grass is going to be a lot higher in copper and providing much far superior butter. 
and, and I was just in a meeting in um, Middlefield, Ohio, and, and Joel Salatin was there. Mm. Lines. It was it was a lot of fun. I, I gave him a copy of my book. He was so excited to, to see it. He said, oh, good guy. I was at his farm at Polyface Farm. Oh, yeah. No, it's amazing. And he, he didn't get into the mineral side of it, but he talked about how important it is to make sure that the, that the grass is at its optimal nutrient value. And, and we understand what that means. But the, but the key is, you know, it's, it's not comfortable for people to say, wait a minute, my life is already complicated. Now you're telling me I've got to go to farmer's markets. I've got to do a, a drill down with each farmer to find out what they're doing. Well, that's kind of where we are. We need to, if you're really trying to manage your, your health, <clears throat> you were talking about exercise, EMF exposure, mm-hmm. you know, sleep, things like that. But if the food you're eating isn't being carefully grown, you're, you're working against yourself. Yeah. And the whole yeah. idea is to get to nutrient density so that we have the, the minerals and the vitamins that Mother Nature designed for us to have in our metabolism so we get peak energy production. That's really what it comes down to. Yeah. And question on exercise, is that somehow connected to ceruloplasm so that when you're exercising and engaging in an ideal strategy, does that upregulate the enzyme that produces it? Well, you're certainly going to, you're, um, the, the piezoelectric effect is going to make more energy. And I think that's going to work to your advantage to make the, the protein. So yeah, I've not seen a lot of articles about exercise and ceruloplasm, but you've now sparked my curiosity. I wonder what and wonder what it seems like it makes sense. But no, of course it doesn't. And the thing you know, is, it's, it's another know? hidden thing in medicine is stealth. I mean, most almost all doctors ignore it. And that's why sarcopenia and frailty yeah. are such huge right. um, reasons of causes of death in yep. the elderly. Absolutely. But again, with the elderly, they, if, especially people who are in an institutional setting, more and more they're being labeled anemic. And guess what they're getting? Oh, iron supplements. They're killing them off prematurely, 100%. Absolutely. And what they need is a therapeutic phlebotomy or a regular phlebotomy for blood donation. Regular regular phlebotomy, and they need more nutrient-dense food that has more of a copper bias to it. Yeah, they definitely got to get rid of that copper. So this is huge, huge, huge. I mean, this is, I I thought I I understood, and our, our discussion today confirms it, that I mean, obviously copper is important, but unless you lower that iron content, you're exactly. deep, deep weeds. And, you know, I've listened to your podcast and read your book, but I didn't have an appreciation of this storage. I heard you say one milligram per day before, but I didn't understand that that stayed there. And unless you've had some massive blood loss, but even a massive blood loss, you only have five liters, right? So you can, you can only, you know, if you donate all five liters, you're dead with a blood loss. I mean, so you can probably only lose two liters, which is probably not much, you know, maybe double of a blood donation. So you really need to do this on a regular basis uh, to, to optimize your health. And I can't thank you enough for helping, you know, for your commitment to learning about this and spreading the message and putting it together. So what I'd like you to do is tell about the resources that you have available so that people want to know more because we've only touched the tip, the tip of the iceberg, the knowledge that you have. I can assure you, there's no question in my mind. We can go on for hours and hours. We'll probably have you back on again to to go even deeper into some of these other topics, but, but why don't you tell people where they can find out more about your what you have to offer. Yeah, well, I look forward to, to the additional conversations, but the resources are, uh, there's a, a couple Facebook groups. There's a magnesium advocacy group. That's a Facebook group. There's a 
Facebook page called the Root Cause Protocol. Then we have a, a community, there's uh, rcp123.org, and you can join the community. It's like $9.97 a month and be part of an interactive uh, forum. Uh, we meet you know, every other week, a very active group. And then the, um, the, the capstone event is the um, Institute, the RCP Institute 16-week training program uh, it teaches people how the body really works. And mm -hmm. there's a, a, a mixture of, of practitioners, people who want to be um, health, health advocates, if you will, uh, like myself. You know, I don't have any formal uh, certifications other than the basics, but no licensures. But then just people who want to learn. I mean, and there's a lot of interest. And in, we've, we've had a, a groundswell of activity in the last couple of years. Of people wanting to learn this so those are probably the biggest uh, book uh and then we've got the, the book it's now available in physical ebook and now audio it's available on all three platforms and we're also beginning to look into um developing targeted supplements that, that we're going to get into but i'm not going to get into all that right now because it, i think we're still in formative stages but i think it's going to be very exciting we're, we're clearly going to focus on uh, the, the copper is going to be a primary priority a focus, but at the end of the day, if people can just lower their iron footprint and increase their focus on nutrient dense food with a special bias towards the copper, as we've discussed it today, it's going to have a significant change in how your body generates energy and how you feel. And if you want to get into the, the real depth of it, the, both the book and the website have the stops and the starts go into more detail. And, and that might be the basis of some of our additional conversations, because I think people would appreciate us having a, an opportunity to, to explore that deeper. Great, well, thanks for all your work. And uh, I'm sure you helped save a lot of people's lives by inspiring them to get rid and of the iron and remove it. And, uh, you know, reminding me of this, and I've been negligent and, you know, cause you get so, caught up in what the urgencies, you know, especially the last two years, you forget about the basics, but this is so profoundly important. And if, unless you're guilty of FTI or failure to implement, then you're going to gain the benefit. So get out there and donate your blood. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's altruistic. You're going to help. I, I think in your book, you quoted that for every pint of blood you donate, you help three other people or four, including yourself, right? That's exactly So uh, it, it is a noble thing to do, but it, you're really helping yourself more than everyone. But that's, isn't that an interesting commentary on life? You know, when you're, when you attempt to help others, almost always you help yourself even more. Not, exactly. and that isn't your primary motivation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, the, and the, what, what's really fun about this is the, the ripple effect I hear from people every day, you know, it's just, it's very humbling to, to be in that position. You've no doubt experienced it on a regular basis, but it's like, there are people looking for this knowledge. They're looking for a solution and, the, and they appreciate the simplicity of this, but also the enormity of its reach. So we're very, very fortunate. Yeah, yeah. You and I both get it that the more you study and, and seek to learn, the more you realize it really is pretty simple. <laughs> it's pretty basic. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's like yeah. you, at first you you think it's not possible. That was my first reaction, but yeah. then as I got into it, I went, I surrendered to the simplicity of it. It was like yeah, yeah. this is amazing. 
Yeah, that's 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 the sign of someone who's wise on their journey. So congratulations, uh, at least in my estimation, you've reached it. So it's been a great, distinct pleasure, and I look forward to connecting again. Look forward to it. Thank you so much.